You are listening to the Soar Above Cancer podcast, episode 132, The Magic of Storytelling, our chat with Paul, with your hosts, Gabrielle and Alex. Hello, fellow cancer thrivers. Welcome to this week's episode of the Soar Above Cancer podcast, a podcast dedicated to finding the strength to not only survive a cancer diagnosis, but thrive at living one's life with cancer. So we've known Paul for a few years now. And we haven't chatted in a while, so I'm very excited to catch up with him, even though that we're doing it on the podcast. I'm excited to hear what he's been up to and a little, a little bit about what his experience with cancer has been like since we, we last saw each other. So Paul, I'm going to ask you the toughest question that we're going to ask this evening, and that's who is Paul? Well, I, uh, I'm, I'm a... At the, uh, I'm a 38-year-old uh, teacher for the Toronto District School Board and a musician. I've been playing music since I was 12 and uh, a big in th- uh, fitness buff. And that's, that's probably the, the three big hitters that, that yeah. en- encompass what I do. Yeah, pretty good. So, Paul, if you don't mind just starting us off and integrating into our podcast, just telling us a little bit about your cancer experience. So maybe the treatment, the diagnosis, and kind of how you dealt with everything. Sure. So uh, in September of 2017, I was diagnosed with a stage four non-seminoma testicular cancer. There's basically two types of testicular cancer. There's seminoma and non-seminoma. The one that I had is non-seminoma. It tends to be more aggressive and it tends to spread. And um, it started out in my left testicle. It ended up spreading uh, basically all throughout my torso and in my lungs. And the uh, treatment ended up being four cycles of chemo. So that's, that's uh, four weeks of chemo that's spread out over the course of about three months with some recovery time. And it ended up, one surgery turned into three over the, over the coming months. And um, I've been cancer-free since November 2018. Mm-hmm. That's, cool. that's, that's like the nutshell of it. Yeah, absolutely. And we've we met you through Yak. So that was a few years after your experience, like the the thick of things was done that you attended a Yak retreat. And how has that recovery been for you? How has Yak played a role in that connection piece played a role in your experience? Uh, I've taken advantage of every form of therapy that has been offered to me because I knew that I had to work work a lot of stuff out and and I I have a I have a proclivity to if I if I have an issue I I, I know I need to sort it out or or else uh, one will pay for it later so uh, all the yak events particularly the the two retreats were imperative in sorting out a lot of stuff and it was a great way to 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 meet other people that had also say been on medical leave and had to stop their whole lives and couldn't do X, Y, and Z and had been through all of the, the effects. They know the effects of chemo. They know the effects of post-surgery, that kind of stuff. So every, everybody's kind of 
understands each other. Mm-hmm. They were they were, well they were they were great ways to get out of the, the city. That was that was really something. That this um, and and well, I'm glad that I took advantage of of of, of everything because yeah, uh, that's awesome. It's interesting, Paul, that you mentioned first off the fact that. You already are very aware of yourself. It seems like that in certain instances, when you feel that you have are dealing with something, you feel the need to go and combat it or at least address it right away, which is a really mature way of looking at things. And it's a great example to set. So you said you've actually gone through different types of, of therapy. And so I'm actually just curious what kind of therapy or maybe what activities work best to help you when you're dealing with something like cancer what works best for you the psychologists are are definitely up there i've i've talked to psychologists in the past on and off for a number of reasons so that was you know some people can some people can feel they need to ward off psychologists for whatever reason and i never felt that Mm -hmm. um i i got i had music therapy uh both in the hospital and and outside the hospital i did uh, a writer's workshop i did um art therapy for a few weeks. I did uh, uh, support groups. Uh, I can continue to do so, but but with the pandemic, obviously that's not the case. Mm-hmm. Um, I did, I would, I would do the support groups at Princess Margaret Hospital, mm-hmm. which were once a month. But I also did a nine week program at Gilda's Club. Um, mm-hmm. And all of these, all of these groups, the ones in particular that jumped on were the 20s and 30s sort of demographic. Yeah. And uh, so I, I did all that. What else? The two retreats, uh, Retreat Yourself and Survivor Con- um, Physiotherapy, I had a fair bit of that. Wow. Cognitive behavioral therapy. I'm sure there's a, a couple more in there, but that's, that's kind of the gamut of it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So you've, you've done a lot and I've always admired that sense of introspection that you have. And that's something that always, that always jumps out at me when I I get to chat with you. I want to delve more into that music piece. And you talked about music therapy, which is not something that I'm very aware of. I didn't even think like, I, I know of art therapy, different things like that, but music therapy, how does that work for you? And yeah, just tell me more. Well, I, I first heard about it when I was in my undergrad because I, I did study music and that's mm-hmm. when it first that's when I first heard the term. And I kinda learned a little bit about it, but I, I, I was sticking more to the performance side, but but I had a, a an idea of what it was. And then when it fast forward to treatment, I was given the opportunity by a woman named Sarah Rose Black, a lovely young woman, really good pianist. And uh, she came into my room and, and, and there are different ways to go about music therapy. One, the patient could perform, there could be writing involved. The patient could just kind of lie there and listen to the, the music therapist, say, play music. Mm-hmm. Because I was an inpatient and because I, I really couldn't move, I couldn't really do much. And, and I wasn't totally up for playing anything. I certainly couldn't get out of bed. So I just had Sarah Rose play some music and then we would 
on her piano and then and then we'd talk afterwards. And I think she would stay there for roughly an hour, be a little less. And so there'd be a musical piece and a fair and a fair bit of debriefing afterwards about what thoughts mm-hmm. the music triggered, you know, why is that important to you? Let's put it into the context of you before a diagnosis and maybe in the context of you in treatment and so there's there's a lot that one can dive into by by wow. playing like a three or four minute song on the piano yeah yeah that's actually really interesting i i haven't heard of that either and and i'm actually curious because paul you play the piano yourself correct correct so do you are you now maybe on the other side of things so when you were a patient you kind of laid back and you you more so listened to the music do you find you find a very similar therapy when you play the piano or play an instrument yourself in in a way? Well, I have more strength, which I know that can sound a little tongue in cheek, but I think it makes a huge difference because the 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 priorities are different now. Yeah. So when I when I like when I finished chemo and I hadn't started I hadn't started surgeries yet mm-hmm. was the first time that I got back on the piano and so I would sort of hack around and that helped to fill the time it's been a passion of mine since I was a kid and so once I started to get the the strength back again then the priorities changed from trying to get through the symptom trying to get through the uh, side effects of chemo Mm -hmm. and music to Mm -hmm. writing music again and so yeah I mean they kind of go hand in hand but but the priorities changed and yeah, then once uh, between surgeries, kind of the cycle sort of continued. And, and, and oddly enough, I actually ended up writing one song while I was in the hospital. I, I didn't have a, an instrument on me. I just, I, 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 I like, scribbled a lot of lyrics and stuff like that. And so I had a vocal melody in my head and I had, I started playing with words and jotting down. And I, be, and I wrote lyrics to a song that, that is now a song I wrote so I could I, awesome. I just so happened to have written a song while while I was in the hospital wow. that's a really cool that's, that's a cool powerful story. yeah and you I know through some of the the chats that we've had that the testicular cancer piece is a distinction that you sometimes make because you don't necessarily meet a lot of young adults with testicular cancer and what has that experience been like as someone who hasn't necessarily been able to connect with people on the same type of cancer and that advocacy piece that you were interested in to, to kind of make those realities known more broadly for to young adults and, and young teen boys? Um, I, I don't, I don't think it's, I don't feel strange per se i don't feel strange about the fact that it was testicular cancer and not something else right that's say a little bit more yeah. um so i could still talk to people like it, if one person had chemo and another person had chemo you understand chemo yeah so i'm a teacher mm-hmm. and i teach a lot of younger students i've taught quite some time quite a quite a bit of old students say at the, at the eighth grade level and before my diagnosis i i was teaching grade seven and eight uh for six months um and then summer hit rolls around and then i'm diagnosed and you know that's that 
there, that's that. So the more I started talking to the, my healthcare team, it turns out that testicular cancer is actually one of the more common cancers for males um, yeah. in their teens and 20s and 30s. Yeah. So it, it, it's not as prevalent as some of the blood cancers, which I happen to, out of all the cancer patients or survivors, the blood cancers, breast cancer, that tends, I tend to hear that more. Mm-hmm. Testicular, not as much but it apparently just so happens to hit the younger men um, yeah. more so than people suspect. And so I started thinking of, well, I mean, I taught a, a lot of preteens. I've, you know, is this something that they need to be concerned about? And I am in the position of being a teacher. Now, I started to go through this little um existential dilemma of what's like, what am I supposed to do with all this information? No one ever talked to me about it. Things exacerbated to the point where, I mean, I can't believe it got to the point where it did. Mm -hmm. And well, no one talked to me. Well, uh, considering my occupation, do I have some kind of a, do I feel like I should have a moral obligation to do do something with that information? Mm -hmm. And then I'm also straddling on, because I'm not really, totally sold on the idea of of advocacy per se i think i just like to tell some stories mm-hmm. um because nobody told me these kinds of stories and so so i i wrestle with it i've been wrestling with it really since my diagnosis what stories uh, um, would you tell if if you had that platform are there specific stories that you would tell well essentially kind of like what we're doing now um okay. just kind of like what happened what thoughts went through your head at the time of diagnosis? Um, what was treatment like? What was recovery like? What was getting your life back like? And what's your life like now? Um, you know, what, what is like, you know, what is cancer? Like, it's really, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of people that really kind of don't know what it is. And, and, I'm, and I have to be perfectly honest. Um, I didn't understand cancer fully until I got sick. Yeah. So I think you're, I don't think you're alone. It wasn't a topic yeah. of discussion in school. It wasn't a topic of discussion at the doctors. So what did I know? Yeah. No. And I mean, like you said, I think a lot of people prior to diagnosis and during their treatment, they don't even know until they're hit with it. Like speaking for myself, you have this image of what it is and the word cancer hits so heavily. You don't really know what you go through until you're really knee deep in the whole situation. It's also interesting because when you're in treatment, you're also not fully aware of what the remission and like the, the recovery pieces, like you, you keep on not un- quite understanding the next phase. Sorry, that just hit me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's true. <laughs> yeah, it's true. You, you play the waiting game a lot. You listen to the doctors, you listen yeah. to the data or maybe choose not to depends on some people don't want to hear the data. They just, yeah and they have their reasons, yeah. but I just paid attention to my healthcare team and, and listened to the data because the data really said everything. Mm-hmm, for sure. So what experiences with, with teaching, Paul, have you taught like a different range of grades and ages or has it been mainly like a, a finite group of individuals and in, in age ranges? Um, mostly the sort of kindergarten to grade four, mostly, yeah. and then yeah. a, quite a bit of work with the grade seven and eights. 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. What, what, what do you prefer? Like what age range do you prefer? Like when you were setting out to um, become the teacher and you had this goal in mind, was it like, I want to work with a younger group or did that change? Like what's, what was your mindset originally? I've all, I've worked with younger kids for quite some time, but a long time before I got into teaching. And so I was always, I was always hired to teach the younger kids. And I, and I, realized that I was I was good in that sort of demographic yeah. and then I started kind of by accident through supply teaching getting some uh, work with some of the intermediate uh, students and and there's well I, I, I this may sound diplomatic I do like both for yeah. different reasons yeah yeah I think I think I I work really well with the sort of grade three, grade four. Um, that's, that's what I'm doing right now. Yeah. But, but I, I got a lot out of teaching grade seven and eights. Um, really wonderful moments when teaching grade seven and eights. I, I would, I would give it another go, uh, like another good solid go knowing now what I, <laughs> what I learned then. Yeah. Um, but it, it's wonderful. You just have to be tough. You, you have yeah. to be approachable, but, but tough. Yeah. As I agree. I, I kind of like that you said that. I had an experience just working in camps. It's a lot different than being like a teacher for the most part. It's, there's similarities, but there's different. And I worked in sort of an arts camp. And I was, I think, 18 to 22 was my time frame that I had been a counselor. But I worked with a different set of age ranges. And I found that I, I'm very similar. I actually really like the 12 to 15 age range because I feel like they're trying to find themselves in there in this place where they're a little uncertain, but you learn a lot and you can see a whole lot of potential in these kids. And for me, I found it really exciting because I could relate really well too. So yeah. it's funny you mentioned that. I mean, it, you do gain a lot from different, different ages. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, just to add on to that, just since we're in the topic of discussion. So yeah. this particular school that I was teaching at before my diagnosis, it's a school in Scarborough called Birchcliffe. Okay. And the class that I had was wonderful. Like the, the they were they were they were really really cool kids to teach. Some tough moments, but but really really cool kids to teach. Yeah. Oddly enough, when I started going back to work, and and going back to in this case supply teaching and sort of starting off slow, eventually I I got to the point where I went back to that school, and so I walked in and it was, you know, it was wonderful seeing the staff. Like really lovely seeing the staff. But then, like being in the halls, I kind of felt like I could feel the ghosts of the past. Because mm -hmm. this was right when, at the time when I was teaching there, I was actually sick. I was actually, I was actually very, very sick. And I didn't know it. And no, nobody knew. And in hindsight, I could see some, some symptoms that make sense now. Because, of course, hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah. Um, but I'm in this school again where... I was before I had a wonderful experience there. And then all of a sudden the ghosts of the past started to creep in again. Yeah. And I found at one point I was by myself. I was in a, uh, like a prep period, which is basically like a, I don't want to say a free period. It's it, mm -hmm. teachers get work done, but there's no kids in the class. And so the room was quiet and the past started coming back. And I was like, okay, but the last time I was here, like, I'm glad that I'm healthy, but I was super sick last time I yeah. was in yeah. this building. And so, so that started to creep in. And for a couple of minutes, I, 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 
I thought, okay, you better pull this together because in like 10 minutes, a bunch of kids are going to come into the classroom. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, I get that. It sounds like that period before diagnosis, the months before diagnosis, when you're starting to get sick yeah, and you're fighting with people to kind of get yourself understood and everyone's kind of dismissing that idea that there's anything seriously wrong with you. What was that like for you? You just touched upon it a little bit by, by talking about the flashbacks, but what was it actually like? Well, I think I, I started to really see symptoms. I want to say, gosh, maybe nine, eight months before I was diagnosed. Mm-hmm. So I, it was December 2016, actually. I remember I started to feel like a, like a dull really kind of a dull pain in my left psoas muscle, which is basically like where your leg meets your hip, mm-hmm. uh, where your hip flexor is. Um, I was actually in quite a, quite a bit of pain. And over the course of about six months, that came and went. And uh, all, also over those six months or so, uh, a low, dull back pain on the left side of my lower back crept in, which I found out from a healthcare team, they probably a telltale sign of, of testicular cancer um, is low dull back pain. So I had it on my left side. It's one particular spot. I, I couldn't massage it out. I didn't know what was going on. It would come and go. And, and I remember I was in a Muay Thai class and when I left the class, I had um, major pain in my left um, psoas muscle again. So when I walked, I didn't have a lot of range of motion in my left leg. And I thought maybe I tore something. I went for an ultrasound. The doctor says everything looks fine. So I go, okay. Then the summer of 2017, where you know, I've already been feeling back pain. I've already been feeling some, some pain in, in, in other places. And then, um, oh, I, I also couldn't cross, I found out. Um, and then in the summer, I started to feel very fatigued. And I thought, well, is it the humidity? Like, what's going on? Yeah, there's always something. The doctor yeah. says everything's fine. I never brought up cancer. They never brought up cancer, which was not on my radar. Mm-hmm. But then all of a sudden all these little signs started to creep in. And um, then one night, it was September, I want to say September 7th, maybe, of 2017. I wrapped up at the gym early because I'm just way too fatigued, way too tired, went home. All of a sudden, I had this uh, um, severe stomach pain, and it's and it got dramatically worse mm-hmm. throughout the night uh i was like i mean in hindsight i was thinking about it if, if anybody saw me because i was living alone if anybody saw me i would they would have called 911 i don't know yeah. why i didn't like i guess i wasn't i wasn't thinking of cancer yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, what do i know and then <laughs> on the floor and i i didn't sleep and then i and i look up and it's starting to get bright outside and I hadn't slept at all. And I thought, okay, well, I'm either going to go to work or I'm going to go to the hospital. And 
they were luckily kind of right next to each other. And then I just went, I'm going to the hospital. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. After, and then, you know, I'm thinking it's a kidney stone. And then all of a sudden, turns out it's cancer. Yeah. So yeah. basically what I'm trying to say is all these other um, pivot points of, of uh, signs to pay attention to started to become starkingly clear. And that, mm-hmm. that was maybe eight months uh, yeah. of, of symptoms yeah. until it started to, it, until, it, until I was told that it's yeah. Wow. Wow. I'm curious. So shifting gears a little here, Paul, we talked a little bit about mental health and and therapy, things like that. I'm curious about physical health. So I, every once in a while on the podcast, get a chance to talk about how I was big into the gym myself prior to my diagnosis. And then for two years of treatment, I, you know, had a little bit of strength, but I had lost like 50 pounds in the hospital. So doing any type of workout was a disaster. So I'm curious, first of all, through treatment, did you manage to find ways to work out the same amount or kind of adjusting a little bit? Cause I know you're big into working out yourself and staying healthy. Did you find ways to kind of do that? And did it change how you work out these days or kind of how, what was the transition between your workouts and your physical fitness throughout treatment? Uh, well, one of the, one of the professionals that I, I wanted to see when I was in the hospital getting chemo was uh, was a physiotherapist to mm-hmm. discuss exercise options if they were at all possible. Yeah. So there are some uh, options available if you're going through chemo. You are encouraged to get out of bed, which mm-hmm. I was perfectly willing to do. But um, it became starkly clear that that was going to take some effort. One of the if you want to call it a workout, step one was sit up. I mean, yeah. really, yeah. If you want yeah. to go that, if it's you want that. to start there, I mean, really, yeah. So the yeah. so sit up, and then maybe the next day you try and sit up and move to a wheelchair, yeah, mm-hmm. and just sit there. Mm-hmm. Um, I needed some help with that too. They had a, a strategy because that was also becoming uh, challenging because I was starting to block out, and so eventually got in to the wheelchair and it's like okay well let's let's move in the wheelchair let's just go down the hall and come back um and then eventually that that became okay let's do a few laps around the 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 floor that i was on and eventually that turned into okay let's try walking Mm -hmm. uh walk the walk would probably would consist of maybe i think i think i walked maybe 10 feet or so and then we would call that a day. Yeah. And so that, that, that was my exercise. And, yeah. and um, soon enough, uh, I, would, I would take walks around the floor yeah. um, of the hospital. And I would have my walker. And, and, and I would, you'd, you'd take your time and maybe do it for 10 minutes. And then you go lie down. And then maybe yeah. do it for another 10 minutes. And then maybe if you can if you can clock in 30 minutes of walking, we'll, that's success. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually, I, I, once I was done chemo and, and ca- kind of got a bit more of my strength back, the next step was talk to a kinesiologist, a physiatrist, and, and to work out some kind of a exercise yeah. 
routine, mm-hmm. having not been to the gym in a, a few months yeah. at this point. Yeah. And everything was light, a lot of sort of tensor bands, uh, resistance bands, um, body weight exercises. Everything was, was uh, there were shorter workouts, a little bit more on flexibility than, than strength training per se, mm-hmm. and s- starting off slow. And eventually uh, uh, things, you could intensify your workout. The, the thing was because, because I had X number of types of treatment, mm-hmm. I would, it's kind of like taking one step forward yeah. and then maybe two steps back and yeah. then maybe two steps forward and then maybe one back. And so I would have to um, readjust to uh, the, the effects of a, 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 another surgery and then start yeah. from scratch again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. It's just about kind of finding a groove. And I think a lot of people can relate to that on a much smaller scale, being in quarantine, not having like access to weights or the ability to actually work out in like a gym or something like that. It's about really finding a way to stay somehow active, even if it's going for a walk by yourself or using whatever weight you have and kind of going from there. So it, mm-hmm. it's fairly similar, obviously, on like a smaller scale, but it, it's it's nice that you bring that up. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. I really liked how you started with sitting up. Yeah. And that's a step that everyone wants to skip over, right? <laughs> yeah. That was step one. And that yeah. was and that took effort. Oddly, it, it surprised me how much effort that took uh under under when going through treatment. Yeah. Sitting up. Yeah. You can walk you have to walk before you can run, basically. So speaking for myself and for Gabrielle Paul, really, really interesting chatting about uh everything with your cancer experience what uh, you do through music therapy and through teaching and what it's really taught you throughout the years. Um, You fairly, you have a very good grasp on obviously knowing what to do when you need help with something, which is really something that I think we can all learn from. Um, And it was just really nice chatting with you about your entire experience. We really, really appreciate having you on. You have a really great uh, grasp on everything, like I said. And uh, like I said, just really appreciate speaking with you today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me on here. Um, So this ends episode 132, The Magic of Storytelling, our chat with Paul Silvestri. A big thank you to all of our listeners. You guys are incredible. You stick with us through thick and thin and through the quarantine. But before you go, just a quick reminder, if you have any questions or suggestions, comments, or you simply want to share your story, please reach out to us through the Soar Above Cancer website, as well as our social media platforms, all linked in the show notes. Many smiles to you and see you next week.